Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams doing Baker Mayfield on the defensive line. Kind of two major parts of the Browns going in sort of opposite directions at the moment. But we like to break down this 3 and one Cleveland Browns team with numbers and film. In the second half, Scott Patsko will take us through what is happening with Baker Mayfield. His shoulder, play action, deep throws, pressure, all kinds of stuff like that. But we will begin with Ellis Williams and the defensive line. Four-man pressure makes the world go round, Ellis Williams. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, and that four-man pressure is working. Um, The point of this dive I want to talk about and unpack is how good this Browns defensive line is, how talented it's become how they're working in unison uh, but to start this dive let's just look at some overall metrics that explain where Cleveland's defense ranks among the rest of the league uh, in DVOA which we've explained plenty on this podcast uh, it's a metric that measures efficiency by comparing success of every play to a league average uh, the Browns defense ranks number one against the run uh, we've seen that trend hold true throughout the year uh, Buffalo and New Orleans are two and three Cleveland's pass defense comes in at 13th overall. Uh, and then the defense as a whole is third in DVOA, which is up seven spots from a week ago, which means that pass defense clearly climbed and jumped a bit um, after what they did to Minnesota. So when you package all that together, you're looking at the number one run defense and the overall number three unit really at the quarter mark, as much as you can have one with this, elongated schedule now um that's impressive through four games especially considering where we're at with joe woods after this texans game so before i i get into the really the meat of this dive i'm just curious what you two think about this quick browns defensive turnaround a team a unit that's clearly carrying this team uh, which is not at all what we thought it would be like going through four games it's, it's surprising that we're at this point because everybody before the season figured it was going to be the other way around. It was going to be the offense carrying everybody. And even after that week three game against the bears, there was just so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. The bears had just a fields out there. He was running around just horrible game plan, horrible protection plan, just bad all around. Of course they beat him up, but then watching what they did against the Vikings, it just, I think changed everybody's opinion real quick. And it was like fast forward to week eight, you know, and they're just, Everything went right, and it was against a quality opponent. And, yeah, it's, it is quite surprising that we're at this point right now, especially 
with the offense struggling. And this is just, I mean, not that the, you know, not that the Browns have really been that good at, at anything right in, in relative recent times, but that they were, they were 25th in DBO overall DBOA defensively last year, 24th the year before that, like this is the, the, for them to be third in this is just, it doesn't sound right to your ear almost. Cause it's like, all right, well, the Browns, well, the offensive line and Nick Chubb and Odell and Jarvis Landry is like, well, that, and we knew, how do I say this? It's like, we knew they went and got good pieces and we all know miles Garrett is a great player, but it's like, Oh yeah. When you get good pieces and put them all together, then you have a good defense. It's sort of like we got to the end of the math problem. We got an answer and it's not just X's and Y's and Z's and cosines. It's like an actual, we finished the equation. Now, not that, not that this is it, but sometimes I don't know. You go through life showing your work and you're not sure if you're going to get the right answer. And I was like, well, this was show to work. You got half credit for that. We got the right answer here. Now they just have to get the right answer again and again. But I'm almost, I'm surprised at how shocked I feel about them having like the third best defense in the league. But like, that's actually what I feel. I can't believe it, even though I also expected it. When you think about John Johnson and Miles Garrett and Javion Clowney and JOK and everybody else, does that make sense? Or do my feelings not make sense? Again, I need to feel your feelings. Like, right? I don't know. It's specifically about the defensive line, though. Remember a few years ago, you know, it was, I don't know, it was it, uh, was it Hugh said this, this unit is supposed to be the strength of the team, period. That's when they had Richardson and Olivier Vernon. It was just this group. I think up it was front. Freddie. I think it was, was it Freddie? Freddie's. I think it was Freddie's year. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah, that was like proclaimed. And, uh, and I think we're there. Like, that group up front, um, obviously offensive line is very good, but uh, it's like this, the defensive line is living up to the expectations of, you know, two, three years ago. And like, it doesn't feel fake, right? Ellis that like it's early, but it doesn't feel fluky. It, it feels real because again, that Minnesota offense is real. Exactly. So let's, let's get into that next, the evolution of this Browns defensive line, how we got here really. Uh, to do that, let's go back to the Texans game. The, the Browns offensive line produced a season-low 12 pressures versus Houston offensive line that ranked 17th. You know, nothing special. They were league average. We detailed the Texans' game plan of chipping Miles and Clowney on the outside, which meant I didn't think the Browns' interior rushers did enough to win their one-on-one matchups that afternoon. Compare that outing to how they did the week prior against Kansas City, and they produced a healthy 23 pressures. Those pressures, however, didn't result in bothering Patrick Mahomes much. He's one of a few special quarterbacks that isn't phased by pressure. He completed eight of 13 passes for 185 yards and a touchdown. Good for a pro football focus grade of 79.2. The quarterback Cleveland faced this week, similar this upcoming week, the Chargers similarly isn't bothered by pressure, and we'll, we'll talk about that at the end. But again, through two weeks, the Browns pressured the Chiefs well, but the elite quarterback play meant their secondary had to hold in coverage, which it didn't. Then in week two, a mature game plan neutralized the Browns' pass rush, putting more pressure on their secondary to hold up, and it was a mediocre performance at best. But as we've detailed, things started to change in week three. The Browns' D-line started playing more together, and versus the Vikings, they arrived as uh, what looks like one of the more dominant units in football. Against the Bears, Clowney and Garrett established themselves as a two-man offensive line wrecking crew. Garrett, of course, had his four-and-a-half career-high sack performance. He also added eight pressures. 
Clowney added six pressures of his own against the Bears. They were the two highest rated defensive linemen, of course, on the team. Garrett notching a 90 overall and Clowney nearing 80. But aside from those two versus the Bears, the Browns weren't generating much pass rushing help from their interior or another edge rusher. That all changed on Sunday in Minnesota. Versus the Vikings, the Browns defensive line played its most complete game of the season. Here's a list of their pressures. Miles Garrett, nine pressures, season high. Clowney, seven pressures, season high. Malik Jackson, five pressures, season high. Malik McDowell, four pressures, season high. Tack McKinley, three pressures, tying a season high, but also adding a sack. Again, we saw the best version of the Browns defensive line on Sunday. Clowney and Garrett now each rank in the top 20 of pass rush productivity. Better yet, Garrett second and Clowney six are both basically in the top five for pressures as well. Altogether, I conclude that the Browns have a fierce five-man pass rush attack where Tack McKinley plays a reliever role on passing downs for Malik McDowell. You add that to Miles Garrett, Jadavian Clowney, and Malik Jackson, and we'll call it a three-and-a-half defensive end pass rush on obvious downs. We already said that this unit is stout and remains great against the run. So that rotation of in base, it's Garrett, Malik Jackson, Malik McDowell, Malik McDowell, and Clowney. When it's time to get after the pass rusher, you see Malik McDowell come off the field and Tack McKinley uh, insert himself. It, it allows this team to be versatile, and the defensive line now has a clear big five, as what I'll call it. And what that tells me is that this is a unit that they're a group that they're going to move forward with. And it's starting to look like Andrew Billings is definitely an after afterthought and second year guy and third round pick Jordan Elliott is on the outside looking in here. So I, sorry, I was looking stuff up for one second. Do you know the last time the Browns ranked in the top 10 in DVOA defensively for the whole season? This feels like a Scott Pasco kind of thing. Definitely. I think it was a year that you wouldn't expect. Um, 2016, maybe. 2015? I don't know. No, I hope I looked it up right. 2002. Wow, when they, that's a while back. When they made the playoffs. The last time they made the playoffs before this. But So they didn't even have a year. It's like we know the quarterback jersey, but like it's not even there was a year. It's like, oh, man, they have a good defense and they, their offense stinks. I'm just going to read it real quick. Their overall DVOA ranking in defense back to, from – Last year to 2002, 25, 24, 13, 32, 30, 13, 27, 24, 22, 20, 32, 23, 25, 20, 24, 23, 14, 10th in 2002. That's a lot in the 20s, Ellis. That is a lot in the 20s. But it, does it, you're, you're focusing on the defensive line here. And this gets back to one of the old favorite discussions here on Gotta Watch the Tape pressure versus coverage. They go hand in hand, but which one is more important? Are you doing this, Ellis, just because, yeah, you felt like doing defensive line? Or do you think what they're doing defensively right now, their success starts with the defensive line? I think that right now their success is starting with the defensive line. I set up this dive uh, with those first two games, the Chiefs and the Texans, as examples of what happens when the quarterback is not pressured. You know, Patrick Mahomes faces a healthy 23 pressures, but because he is who he is, you see the coverage in the back end fail. And then the Texans game plan to neutralize and chip the edges, not fearing the interior defensive line then resulted in the coverage failing. So this is a team that is dominating up front and clearly winning by applying pressure, which is then help making their coverage look better. It's not that they're not playing better, but right now it's making their coverage look better because their responsibilities are less. 
We certainly did not come off the game on Sunday saying like, oh, Denzel Ward, he's playing off coverage. He's allowing stuff to hit in front of him, you know, which we were doing earlier in the week. But when they're when the quarterback has guys in his face, it's less likely that that's going to happen. And again, we're not saying the coverage isn't good. But Scott, you know, we know, of course, it's all connected. But do you can you, Scott, like, did you feel this defensive line making the coverage better on Sunday? Uh. After that first drive, it certainly seemed that they were getting a better push. Uh, they were constantly like the pocket just was collapsing so quick. And even though the Vikings and Kirk Cousins would get the ball out quick anyways, it just seemed like they were the Browns are forcing the issue a little much, uh, a little bit more as the game went on. But then and Miles Garrett has said this, too, that the key is they're going to get the ball out. They're not going to get to the quarterback every time, but you got to tackle people and not let them get yards after contact and, and stuff like that. And that's what the Browns have really done. I think um, really throughout the season, they've done, you know, the back end has done a really good job of not letting things get out of hand and, and kind of closing those down when the ball does get out, you know, uh, shooting up uh, and stopping somebody right before the uh, first down mark or things like that. Uh, so I didn't come away thinking that the defense was, was, Driving the or defensive line was definitely driving the bus. I think it was really working hand in hand really well. Um, but you could tell that the pressure was real, that it was it was coming fast and faster than the Vikings were were expecting. There was a play that I did a screenshot of because I I wasn't in Minnesota. I was watching on TV. It was like a third and ten. And the Vikings ran like three routes, like right to the first down marker. And Cousins was under pressure, and he had to throw it when he was throwing it. And as he was throwing it, the three Browns corners were all over the three receivers who were at the first down marker. And I think it was a pass to Osborne that Troy Hill was all over and knocked away and and forced a punt. But the pressure, it was like Kirk Cousins did not have a nanosecond longer to try to let one of his guys try to get a half step on one of those corners. He had to throw it right then. And right then the coverage was locked on. And it was just like, well, this is how you do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> isn't it amazing, Ellis, when you play defense well, it's like, well, that wasn't that hard. You just run next to the guy and then you get, you make the quarterback throw it kind of before he wants to. And then you're standing right there when the ball gets there. It's like, why don't they do that all the time? Where has that been for the last 19 years, Cleveland? It's not that hard. Blow it up. easy. Yeah, blow it up and disrupt. <laughs> All you got to do, right? So let, let's dive deeper into how the Browns are doing this. And, and first, two things that must be said. Of course, so much of this has to do with Miles Garrett and just the elite freak athlete that he is. I mean, you talk about a triple team. He is doing these Eurostep moves, lining up in a four-eye, which is right over the tackle, and busting inside and – Move, basically teleporting behind uh, opposing offensive linemen. Th- those are freak things that are just one and one in miles, but it's, I think it's a trifecta of a perfect storm here. So you have the star in miles Garrett, you have the complimentary B plus star in Jadavion Clowney complimenting him as a number two rusher. And then you've got versatile pieces around them that allow them to be multiple. So, for example, Clowney lined up over the tackle six times versus Minnesota. That means he's in a four-eye technique, giving him quicker access to knifing inside and twisting, rather than wide nine how sit outside a tackle when Clowney is able to 
play head up against a tackle, it gives them a two way go. It doesn't, it allows a, an offense to stay guessing. You don't know which way he, he could go. And to me, that says that defensive coordinator, Joe Woods and D line coach, Chris Kiffin are probably having the most fun with Malik Jackson. He's averaging a two to one split between lining up in the B gap, which is your traditional defensive tackle spot between center and guard and playing over the tackle. Like I just laid out how clown did six times against Minnesota. That two to one split is 114 times in the B gap so far through four games and 57 times uh, playing over the tackle. Compare that to Malik McDowell, who's had 116 B gap snaps to only 17 over the tackle. Then let's bring in Tack McKinley. He's a pure outside pass rusher. He has 106 outside snaps, only five over the tackle and zero in the B gap. Let's compare that now to what Miles Garrett and Jadavian Clowney are doing. Miles Garrett has 168 snaps outside the tackle and 28 over the tackle. Clowney, 157 outside and then 14 over the tackle. For league-wide context, Garrett lines up over the tackle 10th most of all edge rushers with at least 100 snaps. Clowney, 19th most. The most interesting, I think, here is Malik Jackson, who is only one of six defensive tackles with, with at least 100 B-gap reps and 50 or more reps over the tackle. A lot of that sounds like numbers if you can't envision where they're lining up. What I want the listener to take away is that when you have a guy like Malik Jackson, who essentially is playing tackle or end at a two to one split, it gives you a wide variety of options and ways you can get after the passer and defend the run. But if we're sticking with pass rushing, it makes it valuable for twists and stunts. You can on critical downs, you can slide Malik Jackson outside over the tackle, put miles Garrett in a B technique or clowny. Like I said, six times, for spiking, he's playing defensive tackle over a guard. Those are very valuable snaps, potential game-wrecking snaps for Jimmy Van Clowney. Malik Jackson's versatility really, I think, makes him the key to this defensive line. He's the joker of the wild card among a group that allows him to be as versatile as they want to without asking Garrett Clowney to do things they're uncomfortable with. You know, those, those are some massive men, but at the end of the day, they're comfortable being outside knowing that they are just crashing down on the edge and playing that traditional way through four games. I'd call Malik Jackson, the unsung hero and underrated signing the year. I know we can get into Troy Hill and stuff like that on this defense, but I've been really impressed with the way Malik Jackson has been deployed. And then ultimately his productivity in really playing two positions and being the only guy in this defensive line asked to have both defensive tackle and defensive end responsibilities. So that idea that Malik Jackson is sort of the guy who unlocks a lot of this stuff for the Browns, you know, coming into the off season or into the season off the offseason, it's like, okay, well, Malik Jackson, well, Tommy Togiai as a rookie and Andrew Billings and Jordan Elliott. And we didn't, weren't even thinking about Malik McDowell. And now that it's the two Maliks inside and that Malik Jackson is playing such a critical role in sort of unlocking everything on the defensive line. I don't know. I guess probably not every defensive tackle in the world would be as comfortable moving around as he is. It's interesting to think like, I just thought he'd be one of those guys and they'd all play. And instead he's like an absolutely primary critical part of what they're doing. Yeah. It was such a, an odd group, such a big group when, before we saw anybody in training camp and we weren't really sure how things were going to shake out, but it became apparent really quick that he was going to be one of the guys in the middle. And now that we've seen it uh, in action, I mean, he just, 
he's part of the, all of the versatility talk we spent all off season you know, going over with, with the addition of, of Clowney and, and how they could, how they've used Miles Garrett uh, in the past and, and how all that could kind of just be all ramped up now that you have all these guys who can move around. Um, and even Clowney pointed out that, you know, everybody wants to bring up, well, what does it mean playing opposite Miles Garrett? You know, and he was the one who said, it doesn't really matter who's opposite me on the line. It matters who's next to me, you know, and that's going to be Malik Jackson a lot of the time. And it's, it's really paid off. And at some point this season though, because you know uh, Ellis mentioned Tech McKinley out there as well. They've they've had that grouping where it's where it's McKinley, Jackson, Clowney, and Garrett out there a handful of times. And I need to go back and track that at some point. I know McKinley's sack came off of that lineup, but that's something that is that's pretty much that's got to be tough to stop because you got the three pass rushers out there, and then you have Malik Jackson who is you you know at this point is your best interior defender and definitely your best interior pass rusher so far. That's I, I wrote about the death lineup the, the Browns could have with their defense this season. That's like, that's the front of it right there. Those, yeah. those four guys rushing the passer and, and Malik Jackson as the guy who moves around in the middle is, is an important part of that. Ellis, is it typical? You think like, could a lot of defensive tackles be as comfortable moving around as Malik Jackson looks like he is, or is that a sort of a rare trait by him? I, I think it speaks to his, veteran status you know, it's a 32 year old guy who's been through it I mean he's always been one of the more athletic and more gifted interior rushers um, when he played in a 3-4 he, he would spend time over the center and the nose and outside um, so it speaks to him still being able to tap into his youth and his athleticism but also just being the, the savvy vet and a guy that can be trusted with handling the responsibilities of playing two positions so Ellis how important in all this no matter how talented your guys are, how important is sort of like, I don't know if the element of surprise is the right word, but just an offensive line, not knowing exactly what, where pressure is going to come from, you know, whether it's blitzing or whether it's just stunts and twists and guys moving around on the defensive line. Is that an integral part of getting pressure of keeping the offensive line off balance? Because it feels like what you're talking about with these, the versatility of the alignments that they're able to do that. Yeah, think about the offensive line. You want to know where your these pressures are coming from, and you and when you see, let's go with this lineup of depth. You see Malik Jackson playing inside for seventy five percent of the game, and then on a critical down, he slides outside only to have Tack McKinley line up in between Jadavian Clowney and Miles Garrett. Now you're you're starting to wonder where are all these guys going? And the interesting thing with tack, as I watch some of the tape is he even just does a, a stand up in a two point stance, you know, he's not down traditionally. And, and that's a, makes you think, well, could he be dropping into coverage? Uh, where could he be going? It is the ability to keep guessing at where this is coming from that I think is going to continue to let this be sustainable for the Browns aside from just the star power they have up there. I mean, these are some of the best uh, defense uh, combination of defensive linemen in the league. And again, you throw them all at an offensive line. That's one thing, but their ability to move around and be versatile and be creative uh, just adds fuel to the fire. Cause I would think right. One way to keep an offensive line off balance is to bring a blitzer from somewhere a lot. And they don't know where the guy's coming from. And you this, there's two blitzers and one drops back and one comes, but if you can keep them confused with four, 
and keep seven guys in coverage rather than having to bring a blitzer and lose a guy in coverage, you gain the element of surprise with talented guys, but you still keep seven guys back, right? Then again, because sometimes if you aren't as creative on the defensive line, that's the only way you're going to keep them off balance is by bringing an extra dude. Yeah, and, and in a way it's manufacturing pressure because the Browns now are combining their stunts and twists with maintaining lane integrity. And you notice edge, the edge rushers specifically not sell out just for their sack. They, they understand hmm. that, that you know, when sometimes I've seen Mills loop and just dance around the line of scrimmage, knowing that his job was to have the attention go with him because he's Miles Garrett, which then can open up something for Tack McKinley or Malik Jackson. I think that was what we were missing through those first three games was just a calmness and a reassurance that everyone was going to be responsible with their job. And again, that Vikings game, I think was just everybody coming together, understanding their role and then athletes making plays because that's who they got up front. I do just want to give a quick shout out to Miles Garrett because I did like a little tweet, like four panel screenshot of Miles Garrett's half sack where he had two offensive linemen and a chipping running back trying to block him. And, uh, and it, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just a humble sports writer from Cleveland, but I got 295 retweets and 1,530 likes for my miles Garrett triple team four paneled screenshot, which for me is a very popular tweet. So not only are they getting after the quarterback Ellis, but they're letting Dougie get after it on social media, which is much appreciated. Well, you know, that's going to keep happening. If miles Garrett is going to take on triple teams and, and not have it bother him. Yeah. Yeah. Dougie eats. I'm going to eat off Miles exactly. Garrett. Just like Miles. Just like Miles. Yeah. I'm eating. We're all eating. Plenty of food to go around. It's a big buffet. So in the end, so then it's solved, right? Like, watch out, Justin Herbert. Watch out, Kyler Murray. Good to go. Brown's defensive line ready to dominate. Is that where we're headed? Versus sloppy <laughs> game plans and immobile quarterbacks, this Brown's defensive line is going to keep feasting. However, their schedule is about to pin them against some talented quarterbacks that really laugh in the face of pressure. Justin Herbert has been pressured on 27% of his dropbacks and has a PFF grade of 70. Kyler Murray, best in the league, pressured 27% of dropbacks and has a PFF grade of 87. Lamar Jackson, a guy they're going to see twice coming up here soon, pressured on 38% of dropbacks and has a PFF grade of 70 as well. So to me, that says this pass rush will continue continue to remain dominant however the challenge looms for the secondary to now hold up on their end while chaos ensues from these more mobile quarterbacks and guys who you know Justin Herbert can just throw fadeaway balls when he faces pressure Kyler and Lamar are more of your checkmate ultimate problem solvers and sometimes there's not an answer for that but it is will be their most daunting test these next two weeks, and we'll know a lot more about this Browns def- defense truly being a, a top 10, top five unit uh, once they deal with Justin Herbert and Kyler Murray. Are they the top two MVP candidates right now, Scott? Is that who is? Would it be Justin Herbert and Kyler Murray the way they played so far this year? Maybe. Oh man, I don't, I don't handicap MVP. Uh, I think, I think Mahomes is in there too. I think Chase McLaughlin is probably leading, <laughs> and then it's those guys. <laughs> JOK is in there somewhere, but possibly Ellis, right? I mean, two of the top five, probably the way Kyler and, and Justin are playing so far. Definitely. And to play Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert and Kyler Murray in your first six games. Again, we're going to know probably everything we didn't know about this Browns defense very soon. 
So, Scott, as, as we sit here, are you thinking, all right, well, let's see it against Herbert and Murray? Or are you thinking, no, they're good. Like, this is a top 10 defense. And, of course, that's going to be a tougher test. But I don't need to see that to confirm anything. It'll just be a good matchup. No, I don't need to see them have a similar game against those guys like they did against the Vikings. Uh, it, they're clearly good, and they clearly took a big step in the right direction. Um, now, if they come out and get, you know, get torn through, then I think we're back to asking, asking some questions and we're wondering what the heck that Vikings game was. And then you're talking about, well, again, it was Justin Fields and how much do we, do we take from that? So, uh, but I, I don't believe that's going to happen. Uh, I think this defense is the real deal. And I think I even wrote that, uh, I really just brought that question up after the Vikings game. It's, I think that was enough for me to think that, yeah, the moves they made this offseason were worth it and it's working. And as they get these healthy guys back, Anthony Walker is supposed to return this week. Um, you know, the depth is just going to get better. And Ellis, before we wrap this up, is there anything against the Chargers and Herbert and Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler and Mike Williams that, that they need to do very differently than what they did against Minnesota? Or is it this game plan should work against that team too? I think this game plan works and it's going to come down to how the Browns secondary covers these. I mean, they've got multiple receivers over six, five, a, a tight end over six, five, a receiver over six, five, Keenan Allen stands six, two. This is going to, they're going to have contested catches opportunities and it's going to be who comes down with it. So the defensive line arrived last week. If the secondary plays like how the defensive line played a week ago, now we're talking about the Browns as truly a, a, a top, three top five defensive unit. I don't know if that will happen because this Chargers offense is looked potent versus everybody, but if it does, then we're talking about the ultimate complement between pressure and coverage. Before we go, I will say it, it does interest me. The 2016 Fiesta Bowl, Ohio State and Clemson, Denzel Ward and Mike Williams, was the game that made me say, I don't know if Denzel Ward's a top five pick because mm. Denzel Ward is like seven inches shorter than Mike Williams. And there were like five times in that game where it was very noticeable that he's like six or seven inches shorter than Mike Williams. It was just a bad matchup for him. It was a bad game for Ohio State. It was Deshaun Watson throwing the ball. Ohio State lost 31 to nothing. But it was just like, a, it was just not a nightmare game. It was just a really bad matchup for Denzel. Now, he he was not fully Denzel yet, right? Like he, he came back the next year and was the number one cornerback on the team and established himself as this guy who became the number four pick in the draft. But um, I'm curious to see, again, just big receivers, man. That's tough for everybody. But I, I'll, I can't, like, when I think Denzel Ward and Mike Williams right now, it's like I have this, the picture in my head of what that looked like uh, five years ago, and we might get another taste of that on Sunday. All right, that's the Browns' defense. Thanks to Ellis Williams for that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Scott Patsko and Baker Mayfield next on Gotta Watch the Tape. See, like, I teased it like that, so now people are like, is Baker Mayfield going to be on? It's like, no, it's not going to be on. <laughs> I don't mean to say it's just Scott Patsko. That's not, but Baker Mayfield's not here. It's Scott Patsko talking about Baker Mayfield. So Scott, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. So before I get into some of the numbers here, I think we should say a few words at the top about Baker's shoulder. Uh, he admitted today he's wearing a harness on his injured left shoulder. Uh, and he indicated repeatedly that 
the shoulder isn't an issue. He said, it's, you know, not my throwing shoulder. Mary Kay Cabot reported that a source told her the shoulder had absolutely nothing to do with Baker's performance against the Vikings. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, I heard Joe Thomas on the radio this week saying that absolutely it's obvious the shoulder is a problem. So I don't know where I'm at with this. I mean, if, if it, if you're Stefanski, are you calling running plays for Baker? If you're Baker, are you diving full extension for the first down marker? Like you do against Vikings, if your shoulder's a problem, I wouldn't think so. Um, I guess I'm probably at this point more inclined to move forward with Baker's word for it, taking Baker's word for it. But uh, I thought maybe uh, I'd give you guys a chance to share any take you might have on the shoulder, because I'm going to talk about numbers here. And obviously there is a split in these numbers uh, between, you know, post-injury and, uh, pre-injury. I will say as someone who's, who has body parts that hurt because I'm 48, <laughs> just because the body parts aren't connected or near each other doesn't mean it doesn't affect things. Right. Right. Do you guys, do you want to hear my injury? Do you want to hear my real injury? What, how are you on the injury report this week? Doug? I'm on, I, I'm questionable. I mean, I'm, can I, I'm questionable in perpetuity. So that's nothing new. For real, not joking. Two weeks ago at the high school football game, the high school where my daughters go, in the press box, the regular spotter couldn't be there. So they asked me if I wanted to be the spotter for the guy in the stands who says like, oh, catch on the play by Joe Smith, tackle by Steve Johnson or whatever. So I was in the, I was in the press box and I, I was the spotter with my binoculars. So I was leaning on my elbows with my hand, my binoculars up to my eyes for every play, like really digging in and hunched forward, really leaning my body, leaning forward. My collarbone, it's been 10 days I still have binocular shoulder. <laughs> I'm in pain. I can't exactly lift my left arm all the way above my head. And again, so could I, I mean, can I function as a human? Yes. Am I at peak Doug? No, I am not at peak Doug. Nothing I do physically right now because of my binocular shoulder. I'm still feeling it. So Ellis, just because it's not his throwing shoulder, I actually may need to ask Baker about this harness. I could probably use that harness because I do like to look at through binoculars at games. It still could affect him, right, Ellis, that even though he's not throwing with that shoulder, but it's still connected to his body. And it's all, you know, we all know the song, the elbows connected to your shoulder on the other side. So do you think it, Ellis, where do you fall on this? Or do you fall on the, it's not an issue, or do you fall on the, it probably is some issue? It's probably some issue, you know, when you hear such flat out denials, that usually tells you that it's more than what they're making it out to be. However, it doesn't excuse every throw. Yeah. And that's where we're at with Baker. It's a little bit of, all right, you're dinged up, you're playing hurt, but also there are just misses out there because the throws are different. I mean, Scott's going to get all, you miss Odell Beckham Jr. from the two yard line. And you also miss him from, you know, midfield for a, a dagger shot touchdown on a long ball. So, you know, one takes more touch, one takes more power, and they both end up missed. I don't think you can blame the shoulder for two completely different types of misses. Okay. I think you, I think landing on the side of it probably has some effect makes sense. Cause the hard thing, Scott, is like this guy's accurate. And as Baker has said, like, that's kind of what my thing is. 
mm-hmm. right? If he like hurt his leg and it's like, oh, he can't run as fast when he scrambled. It's like, well, that's, he was never that fast when he scrambled. Like this is his thing and he hasn't been doing his thing. So I think there is a way to acknowledge it without excusing everything as Ella said. So I think that makes sense. All right. But I think you make a good point to allow us to have that conversation before we start listing all the throws that he screwed up on Sunday. (laughs) So let's, let's, let's start with, with this. Uh, We're going to take last season as kind of a backdrop, right? Cause you can split his season into two parts. There was pre-buy and post-buy. And after that buy he played really well. Um, it's kind of hit and miss beforehand, but after that week nine by, he was like different players. Completion percentage didn't exactly soar, but PFF grade, he ranked fourth over that final eight games, 11 touchdowns, one pick. Um, and his uh, expected points added. Uh, he was 22nd among quarterbacks in EPA over the first half of the season. He jumped up to seventh over the second half. So that was a good indicator of how well he played. So again, we're going to use that second half of the, of the season kind of leading into this and look at a few things that he did well last year and see how he's done over this first four games. And even though it's no longer the technical, you know, quarter pole of the season, we're going to pretend like it is. It's still that, that four game chunk um, that teams even use to kind of self-evaluate at this point. So let's start with play action. Mayfield, he was using play action 30% of the time last season and that ranked 11th. That was kind of expected. And it was kind of one of those things that everybody was looking forward to when Stefanski was hired because the year before 2019 Mayfield, his completion percentage jumped up by like 10 points when he used play action. So everybody thought, okay, bring a Stefanski and you're taking advantage of that. And things are going to be great. And he didn't quite have the same boost last season. He was like 6.2% better uh, in play action than when he didn't, but he was still ranked 10th in PFF passing grade in play action, which is pretty good. He completed almost 67% of his passes out of play action this season. Again, the Browns have continued to use that. Um, And really it's almost like a mirror from last season, 30% play action dropbacks and Mayfield makes ranks 10th. And he was on a tear until week four. Mayfield didn't throw an incompletion out of play action until the bears game. Even after that, he led the NFL in completion percentage with 88%. He was 22 of 25 and he was fourth in passing grade. Things look great. His yards per attempt were even longer. He was 12.4, which ranked third out of play action. He was throwing farther downfield. He was only, he was below 10 yards uh, per attempt last season. That Vikings game though, dragged him down. Uh, He was three of nine in play action, passing grade of 38.2. That pulled him back to 17th overall in passing grade after four weeks. His passer rating ranks 18th in play action. So again, Throughout this, we're gonna it's gonna be like all right, it's, it's you know before the Vikings game and after the Vikings game. Um, but he was really super efficient in play action last season. He threw 12 touchdowns against one interception. And like I said, he was top 10 in PFF passing grade and passer rating. What's more, his expected points was among the best in the league on designed rollouts. And we know that's a big part of Stefanski's play action uh scheme. Mayfield ranked second in EPA on those designed rollouts. He was only behind Aaron Rodgers. He was one spot ahead of Patrick Mahomes on those. This season, on those designed rollouts, Mayfield is again one of the league leaders as as far as the number of them, but his EPA ranks 37th. So the point here is that Mayfield has gotten more accurate in play action, or at least has been, and definitely was through the first three weeks. But those plays aren't really fueling productive drives like they were last season. And that's not all tied to him, but again, he's, he's wrapped up in 
in most of it because he's the quarterback. Um, but that's kind of where he is with play action. I'm probably going to say this throughout this. I'm not sure. It's everything was good with, through the first three weeks. That game four, yeah. though, it's like I, we're still trying to figure out what that meant. So let me ask this quickly. If if he's way, way low in sort of the production out of it, right? Are teams onto it? Again, that's you're talking about routes and you're talking about what guys are doing after they catch the ball. Um, because when we say things like expected points, that's all right. You got a three yard gain on third and one. That's great. You got a three yard gain on third and five. That's not good. And that might not, not always be Baker's fault. Uh, you know, it's how productive was that play? How successful was that play? Considering down and distance, stuff like that. So it's, it's hard to defin- definitively say this is Baker's fault. Yeah. Well, I, cause it could be one of the things, right? I mean, he, it's the same rollout, but that deep throw or second level throw that they're looking for off this, they're like, Oh, they're more prepared for the rollouts off the play action. And so they'll give up the little flip underneath the tight end for four yards, but they're, they're more prepared to defend the stuff where he was hitting some shots to jump. This also, the other thing other than shoulder is Jarvis. Right. That I think is is no Jarvis is also just just like last year when I kept saying, well, Nick Chubb didn't play these games. And you were always like, yes. And neither did Wyatt Teller. Right. That, mm-hmm. hey, Baker hurt his shoulder, but also Jarvis Landry is not playing. And like I, that absolutely has some effect. I want to Ellis, I want to ask you this question, because Mary Kay and I had this discussion right at the end of the postgame pod about because I think play action is the is the most where we have the chance to talk about the art of this and Kevin Stefanski's art of the play call. In rewatching this at all, Ellis, did you like the whole thing about whether Baker never got in a rhythm or not? And I was kind of saying, well, maybe maybe Kevin was a little off in the play calling and didn't get him in the rhythm. To me, like 30% play action, yes, that's an important thing. But like when they run it, the type of things, at what point in the game, the down and distance when they do it, all that, the type of the 30% is huge. What did you think of the art of how – Stefanski and Mayfield tried to make that offense work on Sunday. Was it fine or did it seem a little off kilter? I, I thought it was fine. I mean, overall, we'd have to remember this was a strange game. Uh, I mean, even the 14 seven mark, you, you got there through a two point conversion and some field goals. And in terms of how Kevin called this game in compliment to how Baker performed, I, I think it was just a, a nasty storm or combination of Mayfield being off on key or perfect plays that Kevin called. And then at times Kevin not calling a, a nice play and forcing Mayfield to boot right and a lot of pocket at times. So were they both on their game? I'd say absolutely not, but there were enough key plays where if Baker hits, these numbers look completely different. So the answer usually is going to be this lands on the quarterback, but it's, it's not like Stefanski called a flawless game, but the misses are just hard to get out of your head, whether it is just an airmail ball or the, the play action pass where Demetrius Felton's right in front of him and he just doesn't take it. You know, you have to see it right first and then throw it. And in your, you had plays where he wasn't even seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. That's a good answer on that. All right. So Scott, so play action, big part of this but also whenever we're talking about the Odell stuff right and trying to get Anthony Schwartz involved it's like are they taking shots 
how'd they do on the shots? So Mayfield, let's let's go back to Mayfield's rookie year because he was really good throwing that deep ball uh, as a rookie, at least in context. He only completed 44% of his passes, 20 yards or more, but that's still ranked fifth out of out of qualifying quarterbacks back then. His PFF passing grade on those throws was also fifth, 96.4. And he had a lot of big-time throws, which is a PFF stat that basically considers throws that are excellent as far as accuracy and timing and they're further downfield. So, and we can all, I think, remember at least three or four of those Jarvis Landry when, uh, when Baker was a rookie, he had 26 of those throws as a rookie, his deep success kind of dipped the next year. A lot of things dipped in 2019. Um, although he still had a lot of big time throws, but everything kind of turned around in 2020 when Stefanski showed up, Mayfield was fourth in completion percentage on deep passes. It was just 50%. But again, in context, um, that's good. He completed the sixth most deep passes. He was 11th in big time throws. And over just the second half of the season, as you might suspect, things got better. He was second in completion percentage on those throws and third in passing grade. So uh, you kind of take that as a lead into 2021. And again, this is another stat that takes a hit with the Vikings game. But um, Baker was 0 for 6 on deep passes against the Vikings. Prior to that, though, he ranked 11th in completion percentage, ninth in passing grade, and had five big-time throws. So he wasn't rolling like he was at the end of last season, but it was still very respectable and still uh, comparable to what he did when he first came into the league. Um, but after week four, he fell to 24th in completion percentage, 31.6%, 21st in passing grade. Um, and I think the, the big thing so far to keep an eye on is that uh, he has yet to throw a touchdown pass on a deep throw. He had six last season. And I think right now we can probably remember two to Beckham that could have been deep touchdown passes against the Vikings. And we talked a lot about the need to get OBJ back into the offense to create those downfield opportunities this season. Uh, That's probably what needs to happen for him to kind of get back to that level that he was at the end of last year, even though OBJ wasn't on the field, they kind of, they worked around that. Um, And again, they, they had Jarvis, not that he's, taking those opportunities, but he's taking a lot of attention uh, away from someone like Donovan Peoples Jones, you know, uh, but that's where he is kind of with deep throwing. It was, it was okay. It took a huge step back against the Vikings. And I think it was, what was really concerning was just those opportunities that were missed uh, to Beckham. The one that everybody that you can't get away from is the last one, right? The sort of the, the, the put the game away shot that missed. Ellis, when you looked at that throw, just a miss? Like, w- was Baker thinking about it differently than Odell was thinking about it? How in the end did you explain that shot that, that would have really ended things and did not? Yeah, that throw to me looked like a communication error. It seemed like a ball that landed short and outside and it should have been long and over and to the end zone. Quite frankly, I'm not sure if that was going to be a more of a sideline hitter, uh, but there's a difference between communication error and just missing. Again, I go back to the red zone throw, which looked like just a miss. Odell had, you know, probably three yards there in the back right side of the end zone and it's just put out of bounds. When you combine the communication with the misses, you get this frustration pot of overall off Baker Mayfield. And that's where it's just tough to distinguish whether this is an 
shoulder and arm and accuracy issue, or we're back to chemistry issues between Odell and Baker Mayfield. If you had to guess right now, Ellis, what's your guess? I think it's accuracy from Baker Mayfield right now. But again, it is, it is so hard, Doug, because I can't get that last kill shot out of my mind because if they hit it, this is a completely different story. Yes. But how ugly of a miss it was puts you, you just can't downplay. Even after the game, Baker came out and said, you know, we, me and Odell have talked about it's better to have things said than unsaid. Well, what was unsaid there? Why did it happen? That is chemistry and miscommunication, uh, which now I'm almost talking myself into a 50-50 split here, which really leaves us exactly where we were a year ago. Yeah. Okay. And now this, the, this last thing, Scott, is one that's really hard. This is a tough one, right? This, this last area, because this isn't something that's going to change. So... Baker under pressure is is a thing, is it not? Yeah, and I wrote about uh, I wrote about Baker and how he has not performed well under pressure, and I, I wrote another story uh, the next day about uh, just some other trends. And I wish I would have flipped that because everybody I think took that pressure story as me saying this is the most important thing to learn about Baker right now. Um, it, it's not every quarterback's bad under pressure. Um, it's just that Baker Mayfield has gotten worse over the last few years under pressure. Um, I mean, Sam Darnold is great under pressure this year of all people, but Baker has gotten worse under pressure. That's not the biggest issue. I, I want to talk uh, a little about the clean pocket um, because Baker's accuracy has always been his biggest weapon. And a QB is expected to be his most accurate when he's operating from a clean pocket. And really, Baker in a clean pocket, he excels more than, than most quarterbacks. Uh, he, his completion percentage stayed steady at like 67.9% throughout last season in a clean pocket. But his passing grade in a clean pocket jumped from 78 all the way up to 92 over the um, last eight games of last season. So that was another way that you really saw the jump in his his performance um, that ranked seventh over the second half of last year, his 16 big time throws over that stretch ranked first over the second half of the season, 10 touchdowns, one pick out of a clean pocket over those final eight games. So that's how you lead in to this season with the same starting five coming back on the offensive line, you know, the same scheme, or at least the base of the same scheme, same coaches, all that same weapons. Uh, he started off even better this season. He completed 80, percent of his passes out of a clean pocket. Uh, his passing grade ranked sixth, his big time throws ranked third, but that was through three weeks. Um, again, week four was an issue, 54% completion rate, 60.1 passing grade, no big time throws against the Vikings. So that drags everything down. Prior to that week though, it really looked like Baker was what he was at the end of last season. Uh, at least when the pocket was clean and that's best case scenario, that should be Baker at his best in it. And, you know, it, it was kind of close to that. Uh, the steps backward uh, are evident in expected points this season too. And this is on all passes clean under pressure or otherwise his EPA ranked 11th after two games, 14th after three games, and then boom, all the way down to 22nd. If you include all four games, if you're in that Baker had one game, one bad game crowd. Most of the numbers we've gone over are probably making you think you're feeling pretty good about where Mayfield's at. 
uh, so far this season. Obviously, the more information we get, the more we'll be able to figure out what it is exactly we're seeing from Baker Mayfield. You know, is the guy from the first two games is the guy who maybe started to, to show up against the Bears and then had an awful game against the Vikings. And then there's also the mystery of the shoulder. I texted our uh, poll to our football insider subscribers a few days ago and asked them how we should take Baker's performance against the Vikings. 69% went with it was one bad game. He'll be fine. 30% said we've seen too many games, bad games, bad stretches from Baker and that they're kind of concerned. And then less than 2% said that, that was, you know, the true Baker Mayfield. Um, and, and I know who those people are. They, they really don't like Baker and they, they pay us to, to bash him in our tech service, which I guess is okay. Um, but, you know, they're, they're consistent at least. Um, yeah. I think I'm wedged somewhere in between. It was one bad game and we've seen this before. I'm not sure uh, if I'm leaning one way or the other yet. Uh, I need to see more, but that's kind of where I am right now with Baker. I am, and I'm sure the Browns are, they have to feel good about how he performed all those first three games, especially when they gave him time when he was protected. Uh, but if the shoulder is not an issue, the, the, this next game can't get here soon enough to, to figure out if that was a one offer or not. Cause the, the thing about the shoulder is, and we're not doctors, but there's the issue of, okay, is the shoulder having an effect? So it at least is a reason it might not be the only reason, but it's a reason and then it makes you feel good about like, well, he didn't just start stinking for, for out of nowhere, right? And then the second part of that would be, well, then when will it get fixed? When will he feel better? Because one is explaining what is happening and the other is trying to figure out when it'll get back to what it was in the first couple of weeks. And those are two different things. It's almost like, oh, no, yeah, no, his shoulder actually really, really, really hurts. It's like, oh, good. I'm glad his shoulder really hurts. Oh, his shoulder really hurts. How long is it going to hurt? Right. You can, you can spin yourself in a circle with that, but let me ask this. Are you guys hypochondriacs? Scott, are you a hypochondriac? No, Uh, you don't. uh, Ellis, that is the most Scott Patsco answer ever. Uh, No, I am not. Doug, I don't know where you're going with this, but no, I'm fine. I go through my life. You're insane, but no, I'm great. Ellis, are you a hypochondriac at all? Um, probably not, but uh, you know, I, I, because I've never really considered it, Doug. <laughs> what if I, what if I just made you one? That's, never in your that's life. That's the answer. That's the answer of a young guy right yeah, there. You yeah, get older. I mean, you get older and you get to the point where you have to go to the doctor for certain things. And there are certain benchmarks, certain ages where you need to go to the doctor for certain things. And I'm like, eh, eh, we'll see. And Baker, yeah. or, or, you know, yeah, I, I that's where Scott either. and I. That's where yeah. Scott and I am. So here's the thing: when you're a hypochondriac, I constantly think I'm I'm dying. Right? Oh, this hurts. That hurts. <laughs> but it's reassuring. Like with my binocular shoulder, it's not like oh, why does my shoulder hurt for no reason? I know why it hurts because I did a thing I don't normally do. So when you think about Baker Mayfield, and it's like, well, he took this hit on his shoulder, right? And he lost his most reliable receiver. That, he, that he's always had that he hasn't had for basically the last three games. And now this happened. If everything else was perfect and he had a game like this, you'd be like, oh my God, there's absolutely no reason for it. There's at least two plausible explanations for why it went so poorly on Sunday. And that is reassuring. 
because when you have a twinge and it's like, oh, well, I just I worked out yesterday for the first time in 18 months. No, no wonder my side hurts. It's not, you know, it's mm. not something in, in, in my body. It's just it's a muscle. It is re- Scott. I am reassured about Baker's performance through your conversation here. Because all the things you said, well, the first three games were good, and then it stuck. Well, the first three games were good, and then it stuck. It's like, well, I think we have enough things that we understand whatever percent it was, that wasn't peak Baker for a lot of different reasons. So that means he's got to get back toward peak Baker by working through anything with the shoulder and by trying to figure it out without Jarvis or waiting for Jarvis to come back. I am, you have made me more, I think I use the word sucks. Like he sucked on Sunday in the post-game show. You have helped me work through like the idea of, I don't know that I think it's a one-time thing, but I think there are at least reasons for it, which I think is reassuring. Ellis, do you sort of agree with what I'm thinking or does it sound like I'm making excuses? Sounds like I should become a hypochondriac. It seems like a good way to <laughs> just, just put excuses out there for why things yeah. are either failing or why your things aren't working. And hey, it's, I'm hypochondriac. It's like, why? Oh, I'm coughing up blood. What happened? It's like, oh, I raked leaves yesterday. Oh, no, that must be it. You know, it's just like you can exactly. excuse everything. <laughs> everything. Um, to answer your question, there are definitely ways to look at this where you can be reassured. And that's what the difficulty of this dive lands on is distinguishing what, how much merit each excuse has towards Baker Mayfield's production is Jarvis Landry missing that part of a fact that large of a factor and explains why he's sailing ball to Harrison Bryan or Odell Beckham Jr. I'm not sure is his shoulder enough of a reason for why he's not seeing Demetric Felton right out there in front of him probably not but is it enough to where all right one bad game we're going to get back to Baker very possibly and then we have to also remember the supporting cast he has around him how this is all set of set up for him to succeed for for reasons why it is going to there are two different arguments ceiling versus one bad day this feels like more mostly just one bad day the pressure numbers continued to scare me because those seem like they just are always will be tied to what baker mayfield is as a quarterback but for this season it feels like a one-off and because of the supporting cast and Kevin Stefanski, you just, you got to believe that this gets right because the excuses though, I don't think we should give them much merit. They're enough to say, all right, that was just a weird one in Minnesota. I do think that the argument that I was sort of making the post game pod, I do think Baker Mayfield is the kind of quarterback who needs structure around him to succeed. Right. I just don't think he's going to do it on his own. He's not a magician. He's never going to be a magician. He's going to be an effective, Fishagician. Because that's like an efficient magician. Can we do that? Efficient fish magician. Efficient magician. <laughs> Baker, yeah, would you consider yourself you an efficient magician? <laughs> I haven't asked a question about the Browns all year. That'll be my first one. That, and I don't think like, okay, like in a vacuum, it might be like, oh, great. So all he needs is a perfect offensive line and a great play caller and a bunch of weapons, and then he can succeed. Oh, great. Well, how are you going to get that? It's like, oh, well, I have that. It's like, oh, okay, then we're fine. Like, you can't. There's no reason to freak out about a thing. It's like, oh, well, Baker needs some things around him to be at his best. Well, he has them. 
And I think we believe that like Andrew Barry will continue to provide them and Kevin Stefanski will continue to coach them up. So if that means he doesn't have to be Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson, he's never going to be Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson, but they can win. They absolutely can win. And I'm not saying he's a game manager. I'm just saying his way of succeeding is not magic. It's efficiency. It's within a structure. So if the structure cracks, Jarvis is out. He hurts his shoulder. Maybe Kevin's not 100% calling his best game, whatever. Maybe he gets more thrown off by that than a guy who's a magician. So I'm not trying to make excuses. You know, stack Scott, right? If he plays against the Chargers like he played against the Vikings, people are going to be freaking out. Right. So like, but he also doesn't have to throw for 380 yards and beat Justin Herbert 42, 41. You just kind of want to see him get back to the first three week Baker Mayfield, because it was a good reminder by you that the first three week Baker Mayfield was a pretty darn good quarterback. And all those stats, when you say like, oh, and in the second half of last year, he was third in big time throws. I'm always still surprised by that because of the stuff I just said. I think he's a guy who needs to succeed in structure. He's an efficient magician, not a magician. But then he has as many big time throws as anybody in the league. It's like, oh, okay. Well, he's not. He's not a game manager. He's more than that. So I, I, I just, I guess I'm not going to freak out over one game. Give me two or three games like this, and we can all freak out together. Thank you, Scott Patsko. See, you've solved my Scott. Is it okay? Can I get your cell next time I have a twinge in my side? I'm going to call you and be like, Scott. I think I don't know. I woke up. It feels weird, and you'll just talk me out of it because you did that today. So. And I, I can do that. Uh, I'm going to add something else to your hypochondriac list, and that's the left tackle situation, which we haven't really <laughs> talked about yet. And the fact that go. Baker's been under pressure more over the last two games, like 35%, 40% of his dropbacks than he was over the first two. That is a, that's something you want to go to the doctor and get checked out yeah. and try to solve really quick. Because if that's a lingering issue, then, then you're probably going to see things trend the wrong way for Baker because he doesn't perform well under pressure at all. But we're at like, aren't they saying the same stuff about Jedrick Wills this week that they've been saying? It's like, guys, oh, fine. He'll play. He'll be fine. And then mm-hmm. we're going to, in the middle of the third quarter, he's going to have to come out again. Like, I just can't believe we're caught in that cycle. Ellis, right? I mean, it's nuts, isn't it? it it's nuts. And it speaks to the, the lack of depth at left tackle and the, the worry they have of anyone behind him. And we've seen what Chris Hubbard is. So I don't think you're getting that much of an upgrade anyway. Yeah. It's going to linger. It's going to linger. Yeah, they got to they got to get that fixed. It's okay, but again, they're 3 and 1. This is a heck of a thing that they they can figure some stuff out. They gave themselves some wiggle room. That was a real as much as I I predicted them to lose and I thought they'd be fine. I thought they'd be 2 and 2 and they'd finish 13 and 4. It's quite a thing you give yourself a little breathing room, right? That like if something else goes wrong, it's like you could you know, if you would have been 2 and 2 and then you go get herberted and whatever, now you're 2 and 3 and it's like it still would be reasonable. You're fine. But maybe people would have freaked out a little bit. That was a big one last week. And it was a nice time for the defense to show up like a top three defense in the league while the quarterback is having some issues. It's team football, man. Just like when I'm when it's really getting to me when I got the neck and the whole twinge or whatever. And you guys just carry the show, except you carry the show every week. And I always have twinges. So it's kind of not fair. Okay, That was good. I was intrigued by that. I learned and it soothed me, which is what we're hoping to do here. I've got to watch the tape. Uh, Make sure you guys are reading cleveland.com slash Browns. Be a Browns insider. What a deal. What a deal. How could you not want to be a Browns insider? You go to cleveland.com slash Browns. You can sign up there. Reasonably priced. 
extra little stories and like you get access to everything at cleveland.com plus you get the texts right on your phone the news and analysis what a deal gotta watch the tape it's free see you every thursday we appreciate you guys make it part of your week for scott pasco for ellis williams i'm doug Maurice. thanks for diving in on gotta watch the tape